a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explored the subject of contraceptives. In particular, some of the controversy surrounding the unintended consequences of the pill and implantables to women's long-term health. Our first guest, Holly Sinclair, is a women's holistic health coach and founder of health and fertility program, The Women Series. We were then joined by our second guest, Dr. Terry Foran, general practitioner, sexual health expert, and lecturer at the research unit at the Royal Hospital for Women in Sydney, Australia. Holly Sinclair has had first-hand experience with fertility challenges. Remarkably, her own battle with polycystic ovaries is what led her to explore how diet, training and lifestyle could be leveraged to heal and maximise fertility. As a proponent of natural fertility, Holly has helped dozens of women regain their well-being after coming off the pill. I'm thrilled to be welcoming back Holly Sinclair, founder of the Women Series and also Cross Coder Sport. We're going to be talking about contraceptives. Specifically, are contraceptives bad for women's health? It's a huge topic. It's a huge assertion. And um, I'm sure there's a huge number of women listening now that are on contraceptives. I think there's sort of two sides of the conversation that need to be addressed when we're talking about contraceptive. The first side of it is obviously the element of women's rights because the pill and, um, well, the pill mostly, but, you know, contraception in general came to be during the 60s when the whole movement of, you know, women moving into the workforce, women not necessarily being the stay-at-home parent, uh, women making money also came to be. And so it's sort of aligned with that whole aspect of feminism and, you know, allowing women to have choice, which is great, okay? But as we've evolved and as the science has sort of been able to understand what the health consequences are, for me personally, I don't think that's, you know, I don't think that's still in favour of women's rights because the contraceptive pill and also other contraceptive devices like the Marina and uh, the IUD and copper coil and stuff, the health consequences are immense. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about this today, but there's so many aspects that no longer allow women to, you know, it's linked to things like infertility. It's linked to digestive issues. It's heavily linked to mental health problems. And so if you look at all of these health issues and the consequences it has on the economic status of a woman, well, then no, it's no longer favor in favor of women's rights. And also there's the whole conversation around, well, why is it that a woman has to deal with the consequences of contraception when there's also another sex that could be dealing with the consequences of contraception as well. There was a recent study done um, by the FDA to assess whether or not 
male contraceptive could be a thing. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was done in 2016, potentially 2017, but there was 320 uh, men that tested this contraception that the FDA approved. It was an injection contraception. I'm not too sure of how it actually worked, but it had a 97% success rate, which is huge, right? Um, But 20% of the people who were trialled complained of sore injection sites. They had a head cold or, you know, minor consequences to using the contraception. So they pulled it and they didn't actually move forward with it. So if you look at that comparatively to the female pill, the trial in the 60s, three women died. There was serious, serious side effects such as mood disorders, mental health problems, and yet we're still using that 40 years on. So for me, I would actually do not see that in favour of women's rights at all. Mm. Um, I think I sort of want to unpack this and break it down a bit because I feel like we've got two areas to explore today and one of them is the science around the health. Like what mm. actually happens when you have an IUD, the pill, the mini pill or Implanon or I'm sure that there are other derivatives like the, um, I guess, the NuvaRing or the ring that goes Mm. internally. So I think that's one part of our conversation. But I think this part is an interesting question because it's almost like we've just accepted the the idea that whether or not children occur is all on the woman. Yeah. And you know what the funny thing is, a female is only fertile for maximum six days of the month. And a man is fertile every day of his life. So why are we the ones that have to wear the consequences to our health in order to um, minimise the chance of conceiving if that's not something that you want to do at that specific time? Well, it's an interesting question and I, I'm hesitant to go into my rabid feminist mode, but um, <laughs> it would appear to me that most of medicine was modelled on a 75 to 85 kilo man. And mm. so they with their kind of, the entire thing's designed with men as the protagonist. Mm. And then women are just sort of the, the veritable rib in the whole situation. Um, a lot of science was done around men. Uh, and I wonder if it was as simple as that. Is it just the patriarchy in action? Potentially. I think a lot of the research does sit around men, so it's difficult for us to really understand the difference in, of consequences between man and woman, for sure. Diving into the specifics around har- known harm, do we start with the pill? Mm. Well, there's two. So it's important to understand with contraception, there's two different types. There's one which is a mixture of synthetic estrogen and progesterone, and that is the pill. Okay. And so uh, how that plays on our inability to conceive is that it stops ovulation via something called the HPO axis. Um, And basically the HPO axis is the communication from our brain to our uterus. And the pill stops those communication lines by blunting something called follicular stimulating hormone. So the pill actually directly impacts your brain and then it also trickles on to impact Um, your sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone. So that's one contraception. And then the other type of contraception is a synthetic progesterone only, which is um, what science would say isolated to the uterus. So that would be the coil, the IUD. um, And they claim that that is a better 
solution because now you're not impacting the natural hormones coming out of the pituitary gland, for example. Uh, but what they've just found through research is they've done um, a research paper just came out on mice and they found that BDNF, which is kind of like the growth hormone for your brain, is translocatable. It was popping up in the uterus as well as the brain. So that suggests that there is a communication line between both the brain and the uterus now, the gut to uterus axis, um, which could explain why people who have the IUD or the coil have uh, symptoms such as depression and anxiety, even though it's not directly impacting the HPO axis. So that's the two separate type of contraceptions. The other thing to note with the synthetic progesterone-based contraceptions is that they lower your androgen index. So they directly impact your natural testosterone levels. And like to give you a stat, the average, the average, not like the highest end or the lowest end, the average woman on the marina, her clitoris shrinks by 20% because the clitoris is obviously dependent on the vaginal tissue and the vaginal tissue is dependent on testosterone for growth purposes. Let's just footnote that because, I mean, when you're talking about clitoris, I assume you're talking about the entire clitoral complex, which is more than just the the button, the front. More than what you can see, yeah. (laughs) More than the external part. So you're saying there's there's a, a regression of that neurologically active tissue. Yeah, and so what happens then is what... Because, you know, on average, if it's 20% smaller, um, you'll have painful sex, you could get vaginal dryness, um, you know, all of these symptoms that uh, they should be told to you by your practitioner prescribing you the ID uh, certainly will come into effect, which coming back to our first point, you know, if you're going to go on an IUD or a contraception to avoid pregnancy, which I would presume is the majority of reason, although I was reading one thing the other day, it was a um, statistic out of America that said 58% of women on contraception are using it for non-contraceptive purposes, which is a big problem because what it was designed for is actually no longer what it's majoritively being used for. Um, But if you are using it for contraceptive purposes, but your clitoris is shrinking and sex is painful, well, what's the point? Because you can't even enjoy it then. Um, So... Well, certainly yeah. if, if it's having a mental health impact, which I, I do want to expand on, that's going to impact your drive to even have sex. Of course. Let alone enjoy it yeah, as well. Testosterone, um, speaking of enjoyment, testosterone allows us to carry something called dopamine to the brain, which is our motivating, energizing neurotransmitter, um, you know, which is where the connection line as well can come in with mental health because dopamine is obviously heavily associated with depression. So if you have low levels of dopamine, you're going to struggle. So we're in the midst of what most would agree is a mental health epidemic Mm -hmm. in the Western world or in developed economies. These forms of medication are, you know, without doubt dominant. Mm -hmm. What is messaged? What is understood? What do you believe the gap is between, you know, what people what people think about when they're taking it and it's on the packet versus the insidious rise and rise of mental health symptoms. Like, is there a breakdown? Has this just crept crept up on us? I just don't think there's any association. I think we have a system 
that is not encouraged to look at it from a multifactorial perspective. We have a system that is encouraged to assess and diagnose problems in a linear fashion. So, you know, how common would it be for a young adolescent girl, 14, 15? I mean, the thing is, you got to remember, most women do not menstruate for more than a year before they're put on contraception. So we don't even really understand our bodies, right? And then we're put on contraception at 15 and then this affects our HPO axis, our dopamine production, our gut to uterus axis, you know, all of these cognitive um, complications can start to arise. And then at 21, we're dealing with things like anxiety or depression. And so you'll go to your GP or whoever it might be and you'll say you'll do the mental health screen check. Yeah, the um, A4 paper with the like A4 paper, seven questions yeah. on it. <laughs> Which is completely subjective based off the day as well. Anyway, let's not get into mental health because I could be there forever. But um, And then you get prescribed a benzodiazepam or you get prescribed an SSRI. And now you're on contraception and something else. something else. And then at 30, you think, oh, okay, well, maybe it's time to start a family. And maybe up until that point, those types of medications have caused uh, digestive issues, which is really common. So you'll also get put on, you know, an antacid or whatever it might be. And then at 30, you're like, all right, it's time to start a family. Let's stop the pill. Oh, I can't get pregnant easily. Um, so then, you, then you're encouraged to go down the route of further healthcare system support, right? Such as IVF clinics, which... We can say industry. Uh, industry. It's an industry. Yeah. Um, which, you know, for a select few of people, I think it's amazing that we have that technology. But I don't think it's supportive of actually allowing people to take full responsibility and understand why they're facing some of those health issues in the first place. Because I know oh, this is going to be controversial for me to say this, but... Um, our one job as a woman, biologically speaking, is to reproduce. So if your body is not being able to do that in a natural setting, something's going on. There's a red flag that's happened. But my experience with women is that n nobody is encouraged to deep dive that and, and really unpack it and understand, okay, well, why is it really difficult for me to conceive? You know, I'm 30, I'm healthy, in inverted commas. Um, what's going on there? But instead it's kind of like, no, 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 we just don't know why, but use these synthetic hormones, pop that pill, give us X amount of money and, you know, let's fingers cross it and see how you go over the next year to two years. I just think, I don't know, I just think that's such a crappy approach to health. Well, I think what we're seeing in a choice economy is an explosion of, of all sorts of let's call them product and service offerings. I think your point though is very, very interesting. And that is that at, at almost no point in our whole healthcare system journey, does someone sort of sit down and take in the entirety of your story, your biology, mm. your situation? Because I think for many of us, we probably would want to know, okay, what can I do to increase my natural upside when it comes to fertility or mm. even more so at the other end, even if you've decided your job isn't just to produce children and you're like, I want to live a, a fertile life in other ways. <laughs> um, you want to be preserving your uh, female health as long as possible. Mm. Because again, once we hit menopause, there's a whole raft of other things which are, are pretty much just offered to you without a huge amount of contemplation. Mm. 
That's so, right. And I think also if we come, we're talking about the fertility aspect and the connection with contraception, I mean, there was one study that just showed that the pill depletes your B6 by 38 times the recommended daily amount. And How? also because it stops intrinsic factor in the stomach, so you're, uh, you have an inability to absorb B12. And it really robs your body of multiple B vitamins as well. And it heavily impacts your folate, right? So I don't know what the statistic is, but it's a, it's a decent amount of folate that gets robbed. And we're on these things for like 15 years, okay? And everybody knows that folate is essential for fertility. You know, that's why we get encouraged to use folic acid in... Well, essential certain. to prevent neural tube defects. Yeah, right. And so no wonder yeah. that there's complications. So, I mean, I think we've, we haven't really even touched upon the complications arising from the mechanical aspects of things like the coil, the IUD or Implanon. Is that something that you have a serious concern about as well? As in, t- in terms of health consequences? Yeah, in terms of health consequences for women. Yeah, I mean, there was a really large study done out of Denmark where they looked at one million women uh, and what they found was that those who had the IUD had a like, serious increase of depression and particularly the adolescents that use the IUD the increase of them using antidepressants after being put on the IUD was like astronomical. So for me, the concern from a health perspective with um, the coils and IUDs is what's going on neurally. So cancer more broadly is something that has been associated with contraceptives. Mm -hmm. What do you think women must know? I think women need to understand that if you are putting synthetic oestrogen into your body day in, day out for years on end, that is going to have consequences to things growing inside your body because estrogen is an anabolic steroid, which means it helps things grow. That's why the contraceptive pill particularly is heavily associated with breast cancer and uteral cancers and cervic cancer because of the fact that you are consistently increasing these anabolic steroids. Estrogen is beneficial in its natural form. It allows us to thicken our endometrium lining. It helps with our neural pathways, our brain health. But in a synthetic form, it is very, very, very dangerous. And then it's not only our exposure to contraception. Estrogen, as you would know, is in a lot of things. It's in environmental toxins, waters, non-organic foods, products, um, you know, skincare, makeup, all of that sort of stuff. So you think about your estrogenic load, it's massive if you're then using the contraceptive pill. And to just finish on that point, you know, a lot of people think that detoxification is done via the liver and only the liver, which yes, the liver plays a big role, but the last phase of detoxification is your gut. And we need to detoxify estrogen via our gut. So if your digestive system is not working properly, you're not going to be able to excrete these toxins. And the contraceptive pill negatively impacts your digestion. So now it's just like excuse the pun, but pushing shit uphill, right? It's like you take contraceptive pill, excess estrogen, but you can't get rid of it properly because now you're damaging the epithelial cells in the intestine. So, yeah. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to invite you to do something which we don't often do, which is to talk about what you're working on now. Okay. Um, <laughs> and perhaps point people to a high note and specifically ways in which you think that they can help themselves. Like if this, is, if this message is twigged, where, 
where can women go and what do they do? They can come and join me <laughs> at thewomenseries.com. Um, I run an online platform for women. I help to educate them and empower them. Um, and I actually specifically work within fertility or natural fertility um, by basically just allowing you to understand how to get your body healthy and primed um, in order to conceive. So, yeah, and what do you, what do you mean by natural? Like natural just- as in get healthy. Like lifestyle? Lifestyle, nutrition, training, sleep, what relationships you have. You know, it's completely holistic. Like May said earlier, unfortunately, you know, you you don't go to your GP and they don't look at it holistically because they can't. They're handicapped by the system. Um, So you really, like in the journey of healing, you need to be looking at it from every aspect, spiritual, emotional, physical and nutritional. Holly Sinclair, thank you so much for your time. If you want more, you'll have to visit her at the Women's Series. Thanks, May. What hit me about Holly Sinclair's experience is the robust, independent thought she's applied in understanding the interconnected nature of our fertility and broader health. It opened up several questions. How does the existence of synthetic hormonal contraceptives impact the pressure a woman feels to take them? or to engage in sex she may not want to otherwise? Have we allowed Big Pharma to dictate our new normals? What does fertility empowerment for both sexes really mean in 2019? But first, let's hear from Dr Terry Foran, a sexual health physician who has a special interest in women's sexual and reproductive health. Dr Foran has particular expertise in the areas of contraception, menopause and the management of STIs. She regularly presents to medical practitioners and allied health professionals on sexual and reproductive health topics and currently is also the president of the New South Wales Sexual Health Society. Terry, welcome to The Alternative Truth. I thought I'd start by asking you a bit about what made you decide to go into this area. Oh, medicine was something I wanted to do from the time I was a little girl and there wasn't anybody else in my family who did it, but I I had some great family doctors who were inspiring. And then when I got into medicine, I thought, what am I going to do now? And women's health just seemed like a great choice. And when I started doing it, it was a really exciting time. We started to have new methods of contraception become available. And it was on the tail end of the sort of women's health movement. So it was a really great thing to join. And again, I found lots of inspiring colleagues along the way. Um, I haven't regretted a step along the way that I've made. It's been a great job. So looking back over the years, and I guess sort of leading into our conversation about contraception, what has been your sort of big observation or observations about how contraception has evolved in that time? I think there've probably been two things that have happened. I think, as I said, alluding to what I said before, we've had an explosion of new methods um, coming onto the the market and the, the choices that women and their partners can make. So that's been great. We've got more choices. But I think the other thing that's been happening in the last few years is there's been, I think, quite rightly, a degree of pushback and maybe suspicion about just how healthy some of these choices are. And that sort of led me to really take a step back and look at the evidence that's out there and try and tease that away from some of the you know, ill-informed stuff that you inevitably come across on the web. Well, as you well know, I'm a, I'm a, a great reader of everything and anything and trawling mm. the blogosphere, yeah. there is a lot of controversy, everything from theories that contraception is a device to control women, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> an extension of the patriarchy, through to that it is in some way related to epidemics of certain types of cancer. 
What's your view? Well, I think, again, we need to look very closely at what's out there and what the evidence actually is. As for controlling women and being part of the patriarchy, I think, you you know, even a, a dispassionate observer would have to say that the advent of effective contraception has really freed women up. It's enabled to make us to make choices about what we do with our lives, how many kids we have, if any. It's enabled us to, to make life choices that women prior to the 1960s really couldn't make. I find it very difficult to call that, you know, <laughs> any degree of uh, coercion or patriarchy. Uh, but I can understand why uh, women might feel that they're the ones who always have to take uh, the decisions around contraception and there is a dearth of male contraception out there. With regard to cancer, I think if we're talking the combined pill, for example, which is usually the thing that people talk about when they're talking about cancer, there is some old work that suggests that, yes, it does increase the risk of breast cancer, and I think that's an important thing to say. That risk is very, very small because it's an increase on the background risk of the very small numbers of women in the reproductive age group who get breast cancer anyway. But when we talk about that, we also have to counterbalance that with the quite proven observation that being on the oral contraceptive pill, even for short periods of time, protects you hugely against other cancers, cancers like ovarian cancer and uterine cancer. And there is a suggestion that the 30% drop that we've seen worldwide in ovarian cancer in the last, you know, 40 years or 50 years or so has actually been due to widespread use of the pill. And if I do have someone with a terrible family history of ovarian cancer, one of the things I talk to them about is actually going on the pill. Mm, that's me. I am. I've got a number of aunts and a grand a grandmother. Mm. Well, I actually don't know if that that qualifies me, but I am interested in it. Yep. What would be the mechanism by which the pill could stop your ovaries, I guess, becoming cancerous? Well, it's the very thing that makes it so, you know, in inverted commas, unnatural. What it does is actually suspend ovulation, and every ovulation that a woman has requires a degree of processes, cellular change, cellular death absorbing that cell. And at any stage during that process, abnormalities can kick into the system. Now, back in the days, you know, Stone Age days, uh, most of us would have, I think, uh, probably achieved our first period by the time we were at sort of 18 rather than sort of 13 years old. We then would have spent the next few years of our lives either pregnant or breastfeeding. And most of us probably wouldn't have made it um, to menopause because that was a pretty dangerous thing to do. So women in those days might have had 40, maybe 50 periods in their entire lives, 40 or 50 ovulations. These days, of course, we're used to a situation where every month we expect to ovulate. Now, that's suspended on the pill, and that's probably how it works to reduce the risks of things like uterine cancer or ovarian cancer. That is absolutely fascinating. Mm. So the other assertion that's made about intervening with our ovulatory cycle is that if and when we do want to become pregnant... Um, coming off the pill um, can mean that it's difficult to, I guess, conceive. I hang around chat rooms and things a lot too because <laughs> I like to know what people are saying. And you're right, that's out there and it's out there all the time. But in fact, it's completely the opposite. Um, I thought this had been put to bed back in 2002 when a, a wonderful English researcher called Farrow um, took a whole bunch of people attempting to fall pregnant. She took 12,000 couples and she looked at their contraceptive use and she looked at the time it took them to get pregnant. And her statement was, in fact, it doesn't compromise your ability to get pregnant. And even more, the people in her study actually took slightly less time to fall pregnant if they'd used the pill in the past. 
interesting because it's completely against the public perception. So how do you think that public perception has formed and how have we not or how have journalists not come to cover that study in 2002? I don't want to diss journalists, but it was good news and it doesn't make such great press. So often good news studies sort of, you know, we're interested in them as doctors, but they don't actually make the press. And I think the thing to think about in that circumstance is that most of us learn what we learn through stories. And all of us will have had a story about somebody who'd taken the pill for 20 years, then stopped it and couldn't get pregnant. And ergo, that has to be the pill, doesn't it? Well, no, it's probably the 20 years. Um, So whenever we're interpreting things, we need to put things in perspective. And as I said, there's simply no evidence that it, it, it impinges or impedes your ability to get pregnant. In fact, because it offers some protection against things like pelvic infection and endometriosis, it probably increases your ability to get pregnant. And you're right, nobody knows that and it's certainly not in the press. So again, fascinating that you should say that because another angle that people often talk about is how the pill is a band-aid for things like endometriosis. Yeah. What would be yeah. your <laughs> what would be it, your it response is. to that? Well, it is in that it doesn't cure endometriosis, but it keeps it under control in many women for quite long periods of time. And one of the problems I see is that women will actually have endometriosis treated and that's major surgery. I mean, they're doing that surgery for two and three hours to make sure that they get every single bit of endometriosis they can, but they won't get every single bit. And one of the things the surgeons always stress is that it's really important after the surgery to go on something that suppresses things Otherwise, over time, the endometriosis that's left, and there will be bits, will start to grow again and start to cause trouble. Um, So, yes, it's a Band-Aid. I'd probably call it more a very effective bandage, okay? So it doesn't cure it, but it certainly keeps things under control. Um, And the other thing that's important is that the women who have endometriosis often are troubled by really heavy, painful periods. And being on something like the oral contraceptive pill or the Mirena IUD, or the contraceptive injection, or the contraceptive implant, will usually make periods shorter and lighter and less painful. And that has to be a bonus regardless. Got it. So I'm going to be devil's advocate because Mm -hmm. having ploughed these conversations out there, one of the things that's argued often is that we should be getting to the root cause of the endometriosis. We should be looking upstream at their lifestyle. Is there, in your expert view... Um, for people that are very motivated, a mechanism by which they can reliably reduce their endometriosis um, using non-pill or implant means? I'm not aware of them. And I work with a number of endometriosis researchers who um, absolutely are looking for the causes of endometriosis and looking at ways that we can control it better than we do now because it's a miserable thing and, it, you know, it affects... 10% of the Australian population, it's, it's not something that can be ignored. So the research is definitely going on there. Um, but as far as I'm aware at the moment, the mainstay of our treatment is surgery and hormones, not necessarily in that, in that order, um, but they're what we can offer. Um, and until something better comes on the market, I'm afraid they're the sorts of things that are likely to offer women the most benefit. So diet and cutting things out, changing your chemistry... I'm not going to... Don't get me wrong. I'm all for the whole body, okay? I think the fitter you are, the healthier you are, the better you eat, the less you drink, the, you know, the don't smoke at all is better. Uh, all those things are incredibly important. 
um, in maintaining one's immune system. And I'm sure that plays a role. But in terms of endometriosis, I think all those are supportive of the treatments that are likely to be of benefit. So one thing I'm going to sort of loop back on, because when you were talking about cancer and cancer, we now know that, say, drinking alcohol is quite Mm. bad for women. Yep. Where would you rate the pill versus drinking alcohol? And I know that's not a fair question because you don't have a compare and contrast, but in your mind, could you give people a sense of scale around those two things? Because sometimes I feel we're worried about something when it's way out of proportion. Look, I can't give it to you for the pill, but I can give it to you for menopausal hormone therapy because the studies have been done. And everybody worries about breast cancer, for example, and taking hormones after menopause. Uh, But in fact, the risks of breast cancer, if you use combined hormone therapy for five years, are about the same as drinking two glasses of alcohol a day, okay? So, you know, it's, it's a small risk and it has to be put in context with everything else that we do in our lives that's risky. Certainly there is a suggestion that driving a car, for example, increases your risk of sudden death more than using the oral contraceptive pill. Um, yet every single one of us would get in our car without even thinking about the risk we might be running in getting out there on the road and driving around Sydney. You touched on the issue of lifestyle. And again, this is yet another, well, particularly diet, is another topic which is often in discussion around the pill and particularly the pill's impact on the microbiome. Yep. There's a lot of arguments out there that suggest that the pill is upsetting our microbiome and when our microbiome is upset, we potentially have um, an increased risk of mental illness, depression and anxiety in particular. Look, I think that's true. I think if we go back to basics, um, some work done in Melbourne I think is pretty persuasive that our microbiome is is very important in terms of our general health and also our emotional and, and psychological health. Absolutely agree 100%. The question is what the pill does to that. And it certainly is absorbed uh, through the gut and it's going to have an impact. The fact that it, it works on the gut system is going to mean that the microbiome is, I think, inevitably altered. The degree of alteration and the importance of that, I think, is probably debatable. Um, But I would also say that there are methods of contraception that don't rely on the gut. So methods of contraception like IUDs, um, implants, vaginal rings even, if you're keen on a combined method of contraception, do not negotiate the gut and shouldn't impact on gut flora in the same way. So if that's a concern, at least there are options out there. And what about for those women who are on the pill Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps experiencing anxiety and depression. I mean, it's a an interlocking set of, of individuals that may be yep. of reproductive age and that are yep. also experiencing mental health challenges. What's your wisdom in navigating both those things simultaneously? It's a really interesting question because the evidence on this one is fairly contradictory. We've known as long as the pill's been around, and don't forget we got most of our data on the pill from much, much higher doses back in the 1960s and 70s. We've known that there is a a proportion of women who do find that they get depressed or anxious when they take the pill. Not denying that at all. The question is how many and whether or not that's something that needs to be taken into account in terms of making the pill available to large numbers of women. Now, this hit the press about, what is it, about three years ago now, I think, with a large database study that was done in Denmark. In Denmark, they're amazing. 
Um, they're very scandy about the whole thing. They give you a number at birth and then they can sort of track everything you do. And one of the big universities in, in Denmark actually holds a, um, a database of, uh, of sexual and reproductive health data. And they, they go through this at intervals and they look at various associations and correlations and then they put that into the, you know, a press release. And in the last few years, they put out things like various kinds of pills increase your risk of clots. And uh, the last one was that various kinds of, that the pill is associated with depression. And that got a huge amount of press. And I, I think it sort of validated what women have been saying that, you know, my depression symptoms on the pill were ignored and nobody should ever do that. But I think it's also important to look at the figures because in the same year, which got no press whatsoever, another large study was done looking at all the studies on that subject that had been done to date, about 40 of them. And it came to the conclusion that they really couldn't see a correlation between the two, not doubting that there are some women who do get depressed on the pill, but they couldn't see a huge effect. And that was their conclusion. And I guess even if we look at the Danish study and say, yes, although it can't really show a causation, it can indicate an, an association. Maybe there's something in this. Even if we accept that, you know, it's exactly as it is, it said that for every 100 women who weren't on the pill, around about 1.7 of them would get depressed. And if those 100 women were on the pill, it was 2.3, I think. So we're talking that you'd have to see at least 200 women before you might get someone. One who, person. One person who has an associated depression. Now, you know, I think it's important to recognise that, that it's a problem. And I do not want to dismiss anybody who gets those symptoms on the pill. But I also think you have to put it in perspective. It's probably a very small issue. And there may be other factors that we can't see in there that are causing it. So maybe there are vulnerable groups, women who've had depression in the past, women who have stresses in their lives, women who are postpartum. One thing that the study in Denmark really didn't distinguish is whether or not those women, um, you know, had just had a baby, in which case, yes, there's a higher risk of, uh, of depression anyway. Uh, and you can't do that with a database. You can't ask those little questions. Well, it sounds like we need to do more studies. <laughs> we do. Yes. We do. We absolutely do. <laughs> so stepping into, I guess, a different headspace and arguing in favour of oral contraception... Yep. I guess we've we've plumbed the depths of, you know, the addressing some of the downsides which are out mm-hmm. there. The the pill has many advantages beyond, I guess, reducing endometriosis symptoms. In fact, one of the upsides that the I guess alternative health lobby doesn't talk about is the impact of unwanted pregnancies. So from your perspective, can an intelligent person who is very motivated navigate contraception without a contraceptive device or medication, do you ever recommend that? I am an advocate for choice. So if an intelligent and well-informed woman chooses to use something like natural family planning, in particular some of the new little apps that are out there, then I would say as long as she's making that decision openly and with information, um, then go for it. But the one thing you have to recognise when you make that decision is you are opting for higher failure rates despite what the literature that sells these products tells you. Now, there's a difference when you're looking at contraception between what you get in real life and what you get in a study. And when we talk about failure rates, we're usually talking about the rates you get in a study or the ideal failure rates. 
when you put that contraceptive method out there, you know, in real people, getting real drunk on real Saturday nights, <laughs> those figures tend to skew a little bit. And the more robust your method of contraception is, the less likely that it's going to be let down through human error. So if you've got an implant in or you've got an IUD in and you muck up days and times and whatever, it makes no difference because it's there and you don't have to worry about it. If you're on the pill, it does require a commitment every single day of your life to take that pill or it will let you down. And if you're using a natural method of family planning, every day you've got to get data, you've got to you know put that all together depending on what sort of system you're using. Um, obviously, a computer can do that for you, um, but you need to be putting the data in. And it's going to mean that for at least probably 10 days a month, you're going to be looking at abstinence. That's what the method is going to suggest you do. Now, when I speak to women about that, most of them are sort of using a hybrid. They're using that and they're using the 10 days to have sex with a condom or not having vaginal sex during those days, you know. So, and we don't have any figures on that. We have no idea when people are sort of mixing and matching what sort of figures you're going to get. So from my perspective, I would say absolutely everybody needs to look at the range of contraceptive methods out there, weigh up what risks they're prepared to take because the more effective methods are, yes, associated with the higher risks, although they're low risks, or whether or not they're prepared to deal with a failure and what they would do. So if a failure could be dealt with and it wouldn't be a total disaster, then you may edge towards those less effective methods. If a, if a pregnancy is a total disaster in your life at that time, then I would say, do you really want to take those risks? And only the woman herself and her partner can answer that. Well, let's talk about total disaster because I presume you're mm. meaning a situation whereby a woman finds herself pregnant and she can't go ahead with it. Yep. What are the, Do we have numbers and metrics around what that means? Because, you know, it's, it's still a taboo subject in, in many circles and abortion should always be safe, but it also should be rare. It shouldn't be a form of contraception in and of itself. I'm absolutely pro-choice. I'll say that up front. But I always think a pregnancy test is much more easily dealt with before the pregnancy test is positive. So you're quite right. Effective methods of contraception are generally the way that I would be advising women um, to prevent an unintended pregnancy. But all methods have failures. Even the most effective methods have failures. And the option of, of backing that up with a termination of pregnancy, if that's the choice, I personally think should always be there. But the other thing about it is that often the disastrous pregnancy is not in that group who would terminate, but in a group who would have really bad philosophical objection to termination but find themselves with an unintended pregnancy. And I think that's even more tragic um, because the, what that can lead to is either a termination of pregnancy that really disrupts that woman's own philosophical beliefs and standards or the continuation to birth and delivery of a pregnancy that's not really desired and wanted. Um, I mean, obviously, not all unintended pregnancies are unwanted, but a proportion are. And I guess we need to be starting to talk about this and talking about the fact that all methods have failures, that we need to back that up with assistance and support for women who find their methods let them down, but also to be frank and honest about these failure rates and not oversell methods um, that are less effective than, you know, some of the other choices that could be made. Terry, fantastic to speak to you. A very robust safari through the world of contraception. And thank you once again for joining us on The Alternative Truth. It's a subject I'm passionate on. Thank you for asking me to speak on it. It's clear from speaking with Terry 
that it would be easy to forget the major gains that have been made in the domain of sexual and reproductive health. The advent of mass contraception has allowed for reliable decoupling of women's fertility and intercourse. There's absolutely no doubt that on the subject of unwanted pregnancy, this has delivered major benefits. Still, the questions are, has the pendulum swung too far? Has the widespread use of contraceptives perhaps reduced our innate literacy and understanding of our own hormonal health and natural fertility? At what point is manipulating our natural state causing negative impacts to our levels of connection? Is it time we reopen this conversation between men and women together to create more shared involvement and accountability when it comes to contraception? Thanks once again for joining us on The Alternative Truth and join me in the rest of the series where we dive into is the mainstreaming of porn damaging our wellbeing? Self-improvement versus self-harm in plastic surgery? Produce of circumstance? What should we really be eating? And energy medicine. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. Hi, I'm Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast, or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.